Good morning again. It's good to see you. Those of you who are with us in person, those of, uh, those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad that we can be together. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor, and it's my privilege to do so. And, um, you know, my family and I in December, we made a big step, and we decided to go get a puppy. And people warned me, and I thought I knew what I was getting into, but if you've ever had a puppy, you know puppies are a lot of work. And uh, we have a puppy that's pretty good. I would say that Mickey, our little guy, is good 90% of the time, which is not bad. But if you do the math, that means about two hours of the day, he's a naughty little dog. And uh, it can feel longer than two hours. And we're making some progress, for those of you that maybe are concerned. Um, we have, uh, he is going to the bathroom outside. That's, that was a, that's a big deal. Uh, he has gotten better at treating our hands like his personal chew toy. That's also a big deal. But the two areas that we still are really struggling with Mickey is where he can go and what he can mess with. There's certain parts of our home that we don't really want him to get into, and there's certain things that we don't really want him to touch. And one of the things is we want him to stay downstairs because upstairs is our bedrooms, and there's things in the bedroom that he really shouldn't get his hands on or his hands, his paws on. And uh, he's a very interesting dog. Uh, get his paws on. And uh, so we put this gate at the bottom of our stairs, but Mickey is undeterred. And here's a picture last week of Mickey. If you can see this picture, there he is. There's the gate, and he's got his head right underneath that gate, and he's ready to fire right up those stairs. The other thing is, is that Mickey is not great at leaving our stuff alone. And every now and then we find him. Here's a picture from last week of Mickey's messing with my wife's backpack that she uses to carry my youngest daughter's medications and stuff. And doesn't he just look so innocent? Look at him. His ears are down. He knows he's in trouble. Them big eyes. Like, how can you be mad at that little puppy? But we're working. And what I realized... What we're trying to do, which is very challenging for children and puppies, by the way, is we're trying to instill a moral compass <laughs> into a dog. We're trying to teach him this is good, this is bad, this is right, and this is wrong. And this morning, as we're in our series, Dear Church, looking at the seven letters that Jesus wrote to churches through his servant John in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, we're looking at the fourth letter. It's the letter to the church in Thyatira. And Jesus is concerned about the moral compass of his people, the way in which they live their lives, their sense of what is right and their sense of what is wrong. And we're going to read this passage together beginning in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. I'm reading to you from the ESV. Uh, I'll, I'll explain a few things as we go because it's a little bit of a dense passage. Uh, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, so we know this is coming right from Jesus, who has eyes like a flame of fire. And that metaphor means that Jesus sees all. He has burning, searching eyes, and nothing escapes his ability to see. Even this morning, he sees into your heart. He sees into your life. He has the eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, speaking of his purity. Here's the good news. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. This church is doing a lot of things really well. A few weeks ago, we talked about the church in Ephesus that had the works but not the love. And Thyatira has both, the works and the love. And in fact, it says, your latter works, what you're doing now is even better than what you used to do. There's growth. It's good. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Now, really quick, let me just clarify something. This, this this um, false teacher in the church that they were allowing to teach 
Her name was not Jezebel. What, what, what's being referenced here is a well-known woman from the Old Testament, a queen Jezebel who was married to a king Ahab who ruled over Israel. And Jezebel led those people back then into idolatry and immorality, just like this prophetess is doing. So, so John is not actually naming the woman. He's just referencing the same spirit with which the woman is working. She is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, this is primarily speaking of spiritual adultery, giving your heart to something other than God. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. I know that sounds harsh. The word children there doesn't literally mean innocent young children. It means anyone who follows her ways and follows in her teachings. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Remember, he has the eyes of flaming fire. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you, so there were some people who hadn't fallen for this woman's teaching. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, you have not, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, some commentaries say that this phrase, deep things of Satan, John's actually poking fun because this prophetess is calling her teaching the deep things of God. And, and, and John is saying it's not the deep things of God, it's the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. And now look at what John says here. Only hold fast what you have until I come. He's, Jesus speaking through John, I should say. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him or her, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now listen, it's a lot, right? It's pretty dense. We're not going to unpack it all. But I just want to point out that Jesus, through John, is doing a lot in this letter. He's rebuking them for not confronting a woman who's giving a false teaching in the church. That is part of the church's responsibility, is to speak up when there are false prophets and false prophetesses and people who are teaching things that are not the deep things of God, but that are actually lies and distractions from the thing that they're supposed to hold fast to, which is the gospel. But the other thing that's happening in this letter is Jesus is putting his finger on the pulse of the morality of this church. Did you pick that up? That there's immorality in the church. And, and so this morning we're actually going to talk about morals. And there's three things we're going to learn from this passage together. We're going to learn first that uh, everyone has morals, number one. Number two, no one is moral. And then three, Jesus is greater than morals. Okay, Everyone has morals, no one is moral, Jesus is greater than morals. So let's start first with everyone has morals. Now, Whenever you talk about morals and morality in the church, uh, you, it's possible that people who uh, people might push back and say, see, this is why I actually don't come to church. This is actually my issue with Christianity. You guys are always talking about right and wrong and the way to live, and you insist that everybody else live the way that you live. And a lot of people have that issue with Christianity. Maybe you've, maybe you've come up against that in your family or with your friends. And they would point to things like the history of things that have been done in Jesus' name. And there's a terrible history of things that, quote-unquote, Christians have done in Jesus' name that do not honor his name or his kingdom. Other people would point at the hypocrisy of the church throughout the years and the ways in which church leaders and Christians have been inconsistent. And that also happens, of course. And then 
Another reason why this is such an issue is because sometimes the church elevates morality to being equal with the gospel um, or elevates it above the gospel. In some cases, the, the objection to the conversation on morality that exists in our society in America today, we bear some of the weight and responsibility of that as a church because there are inconsistencies in our history and the way that we live and, and also inconsistencies uh, even to this very day uh, the ways in which we embody what it means to be Jesus' people. And so, so you'll have people who say, don't talk to me about morals. Uh, you, you, know, you know, you have your morals. I don't, I don't need your morals. But the problem with that is it's actually an inconsistent thing to say. Because listen carefully. When someone says to you, you shouldn't talk to me about your morals, what they're saying is the way that I think you should live differently according to the way that I think you should live. So what they're saying is I have morals, and in my set of morals, it's bad for you to talk about your morals to me. And what they're saying is my morals are superior to yours. But the truth is, is that every single person navigates life with a sense of what's right and what's wrong. We don't all agree, right? Even in this room, we may not all have the exact same standard of right and wrong, but we all have a standard of right and wrong. I was reading this really interesting story a couple weeks ago. Maybe you saw it. For some reason, it made the local news. It was out of Beaverton, Oregon. And there was a guy who came up to a car that was running and the keys had been left in it. And so he took advantage of the situation and he stole the car. And he took off in the car and he was down the road and all of a sudden he realized there was a young child in the backseat. What a nightmare. And so this guy turns around, drives back to where he stole the car from, finds the parent of the child, lectures the parents on leaving their child in their car, lets the parent take their child and then takes off with the car, still stolen. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to explain the irony, right? It's very obvious. Everyone has morals. <laughs> this guy's moral framework, his worldview, allowed him to commit grand larceny and auto theft, but he was going to give this person a moral lecture on leaving their child in a car while they ran in to get something. Now, probably both of those things aren't exactly right ways to live. However, the point being, everyone functions and lives according to some set of rules that you've got somewhere. You've learned them somewhere. I was listening to a podcast later, or lately. Uh, that would be weird if I listened to it later and I was talking to you about it now. Uh, I listened to it lately, and they were interviewing a, a lady named Rachel Sherman, who's a sociologist and an author. And she wrote a book called Uneasy Street subtitled The Anxieties of the Rich or the Wealthy. And what she did is she interviewed 50 of the wealthiest people in New York City, people who live on the Upper East and the Upper West Side, and she talked to them about their lives and their wealth. And what she found was that they're very anxious people, and they're anxious about their wealth. But they're not anxious in the ways that you and I might think they are. They're not anxious about losing their wealth. Most of them never could, basically. They're not anxious about even really getting much wealthier. Here's what all the anxiety boiled down to. They were anxious about how can I be a wealthy person and a good person? What does it look like to be wealthy and good? I found that surprising in some sense, but also unsurprising in another, because every single human being is haunted by this sense of, am I good enough? Am I living up to a standard outside of myself? Which, by the way, is in and of itself an argument for the existence of God that we all sense this sort of pressure and we all carry this sort of weight. And so the question before all of us this morning and all of your friends and all of your family is not, do you have morals? We all do. The question before us is this, where'd you get them from? Where are you getting your morals from? 
from culture, from media, from America, from somewhere else in the world, from your upbringing? And how can we trust our source of morals to be both credible and caring towards us? That our source both knows what it's saying, but also knows us and cares about us. And of course, the Christian worldview is that God has given us his word, the scripture. And in the scriptures, he's revealed to us the way in which he wants us to live. And what I want to do, and I hope this is helpful for you this morning, is I want to I show you seven beliefs, and we're going to be very quick, so don't get nervous about the number seven, seven beliefs that are in the scriptures that are the foundational building blocks for a moral Christian worldview, okay? The first thing is this, is that God is revealed in the book of Genesis to be a righteous creator. And let me just say that if he is a righteous creator, then we as his creation are accountable to him for the way in which we live our lives, steward our lives, and steward really all of creation. Now, if you're having an argument with somebody on an issue of morality, whether you're talking about sanctity of life, whether you're talking about sexual ethics, whatever you're talk whether you're talking about how you treat immigrants, whatever it is, if you're having a conversation on morality, especially personal morality, and they don't believe this, the conversation is not going to go anywhere. The bridge you're trying to build from you to them isn't going to break down at the top. It's going to break down at the bottom. Because if someone doesn't believe that God is a righteous creator to whom we are accountable, then there's no common ground by which to have that discussion. It's very challenging at least. Okay? Second thing, God made us to bear his image. And if God invested his very image into us, he has something to say about the way in which we do that. Right? Number three, God, you know, well, let me say this about this one first. You ever say to your child, hey, we're, my last name's Hurtwick, we're Hurtwicks. Hurtwicks don't do that. So in my house, it's like, hey, we're Hurtwicks. We don't eat our steak. Well done. Don't even think about it, right? So all of you have different things like that. That's kind of what I'm saying here. God is saying, hey, you bear my image. You're mine, right? Okay. Just wanted to point that out and make a little argument for steak. Number three, uh, God has a plan for human flourishing, which means God has a specific image for what it means for us as humankind to live free and to genuinely flourish, okay? So when he gives us a way to live, it's not to rain on our parade. It's to lead us into his definition of human flourishing. Number four, God loved us when we were his enemies. So he doesn't just know us and create us, but he loves us and he's pursued us. Number five, God bought us with a price. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 20, when Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about sexual immorality and he's presenting to them the Christian sexual ethic, which is radically different than what was prevalent in Rome and in the Greek culture at that time, he says in 1 Corinthians 6 20, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. In other words, he's saying, you are not your own. Somebody paid a tremendous price for you. And that becomes the heart behind some of our morals as Christians. Number six, God's perfect will for us is to become like Jesus. And number seven, God wants to, and he will, because he does what he wants, dwell with his people someday. Now, as we look at these seven, what I want to say is, this is so much more than a list of truths. This is so much more than propositional truth. This is a narrative. This is a story. And nothing shapes our morals more than the story that we tell ourselves and the story that we most believe. We find this in God's word. So the question is, where are we getting our morals from? We go to scripture to ask the question, how then should we live? How should we live our lives? And before I move to the second point, let me just say, when people go to Scripture, a lot of times they struggle with, well, if you're going to tell me to follow the rules and the laws, which ones? Because there's some crazy ones in the Old Testament. 
Do I have to follow those? And I want to help you out really quickly if you're confused about that. When we look at the Old Testament, there's three types of laws. There is the ceremonial laws, there's the civic laws, and there's the character laws. Ceremonial laws are the laws that God gave to the Jewish people so that they could approach him and worship him. So these are the weird laws about how to clean yourself and the laws about what sort of animals to sacrifice. These laws, when you read them in the Old Testament, they all point to a future sacrifice in Jesus Christ, but they don't apply to us. How many of you are glad you didn't have to bring a dove with you this morning to sacrifice? And we'd have to screen that dove too. So ceremonial laws. The second type of laws that you see in the Old Testament are called civic laws. And this was God preventing Israel from falling apart as a nation. If someone steals from you, here's what you do. If someone murders someone, here's what happens to them. We don't go to the scripture. Now, a lot of our civic laws in America have some foundations in these laws, but we don't actually go to the Old Testament for civic laws. We have governing laws at the federal, state, and local level. We follow those civic laws, right? These two categories of laws are not binding on Christians today. These were unique to to the Jewish people at that time. But this third character, which is actually often called the moral laws, but I'm calling it character. Maybe it'll help you remember them because it's all C's. Those laws, like the Ten Commandments, for example, reveal the very character of God, who he is, what he loves, what he's passionate about. And those laws do apply to us today. So maybe that will help you with the Old Testament. What do we do when we get to the New Testament? It's easier. In the New Testament, we look at the life and teaching of Jesus, look at the way he lived and the things that he said, the way he treated people, who he spent his time with. That's how we should live. Look at the ethics and values of the kingdom of God. Get very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. What does God value? And then lastly, we can look at the teachings and the epistles that Paul and John and Peter uh, and others wrote for instructions to early believers. And these are all ways in which we ought to live, okay? I hope that's helpful. One more thing that we're going to do as a church that might help you a lot. Starting February 8th, you're all invited to do a reading plan, a shared Bible reading plan with your pastors and other people in the church. We're going to use an app called Version Bible app. It's free. You can get it on your phone. If you don't like apps, you can use your, your web browser to join us. And we're going to, in 90 days, we're going to read through the New Testament as a church. It's an opportunity for you to link up with us. You go to our church website, there's a big button that says read together, and you can click on that. It'll bring you to the app. You can accept the invitation. And what's cool is we'll be reading the same thing as a church, but also there's like a chat room where people can leave comments and you can ask questions and your pastors will be there and we can interact because we just believe that if everyone has morals and they do, we need to make sure we know God's word. Otherwise, where are we getting our morals from? Okay. Second point this morning is this. No one is moral. When I became a parent, I have three daughters, 12, 9, and 6, almost 12, 10, and 7, by the way. Um, when, I had, when, when I became a parent, I realized as my girls got older, most of my job now is um, negotiating <laughs> uh, and also, also reading minds or being a detective of people's minds. So I find myself asking this question a lot. What were you thinking? Right? I'm trying to understand their minds. What were you thinking? Why would you do that? What's going through your head? Why are you like your mother? Stuff like that. No, I don't say, I don't say that. She's a saint. She's a saint. Uh, but ha- have, you, have you ever in your life found yourself asking that question of yourself? What were you thinking? Why would you do that? See, none of us is moral all the time. None of us gets it right all the time. Forget living up to the Bible standards. If we're honest, we haven't even lived up to our own standards for most of our lives. 
And we don't have it within us. No one is moral. And the reason, by the way, for our moral inconsistencies is not that we can't live right, it's that we don't love right. I'll say that again. It's not that we can't live right, it's that we don't love right. And what happens in this letter to Thyatira is that Jesus draws a connection between idolatry, loving things more than him, and immorality, living in a way that's not like him. And this church in Thyatira, to give you some context, out of the seven churches, this city was the smallest, most inconsequential, inconsequential city of the seven. Okay? It was not affluent. There was very little money there. It was an up-and-coming city. And they really only were known for two things. There were two industries that work in Thyatira, two different trade guilds. One was a trade guild in cloth uh, and materials. And another was a trade guild in stones and metals. And these guilds, or maybe even like modern-day unions, they controlled everything, and everybody worked in one or the other, and that's how you got ahead in Thyatira. And one of the commentaries that I read said this, every single month, these guilds, they would sponsor meals for their workers, their members, and the family members. And these feasts, they would come to these big feasts, and they would worship the emperor of Rome, who at this time was Domitian, or they would worship false gods. And, and frequently, it would also include sexual immorality, because a lot of times in this false worship, there were, there were cultic prostitutes, and there was all sorts of uh, sexual immorality happening. And to not go to this meal, and to not accommodate to these pagan practices, it placed someone at significant economic risk, particularly if they wanted to get ahead in business and society. So these parties, these meals, these gatherings every month were where you rub shoulders with other well-to-do people. It's where you shook the right hand. It's where you had the right conversations. It's the deal before the deal, right? And for Christians to miss that environment felt like a disadvantage. And so the Christians in Thyatira were going, but the problem is, is when they would go, they'd get sucked into the behavior and the activities that were happening at these meals and at these parties. So why did they go? I wrote down a list of reasons why they might have gone. They wanted to fit in. We can, we can all, no one wants to stick out and be, they wanted to fit in. They wanted the security that comes with having a good job and having the right connections. They wanted significance. All the important people were there. They want to be important. They wanted to be included. They didn't want to be left out. They wanted to be on the inside. They didn't want to be on the outside. They wanted to succeed. They wanted to be important. Listen, we all want those things in different ways. But the problem is we move from wanting those things to worshiping those things. And we have to have those things. And then we'll do things we swore we would never do because of our desire for those things. And so what this means and what we learn in the letter to Thyatira is that idolatry, which is worshiping something more than God, always leads to immorality. The moments in your life when you've made decisions that you can't believe you've made, you've gone down a path that you thought you'd never go down, it didn't start with that. It started in your heart. The way we live is determined by what we love over and over and over. But what I want to point out is this, that not only does idolatry lead to immorality, listen very carefully, idolatry can also lead to morality. There's a lot of people out there living very good and keeping all the rules and even being very religious, but doing it for all the wrong reasons. Let's, go, let's look at that list again. Do you think there are people in religious circles who want to fit in, who want the security of feeling like, I'm going to go to heaven someday, so I'm keeping all the rules? They want significance, and they feel like I'm better than other Christians who don't do or do the things I don't do. They want to be on the inside, not the outside. They want to succeed. They want to be important. And we miss what's being said in this letter if we think it's just the people who are living what we would consider to be immoral lives. 
Because you can do all the right things and have all the wrong motivations. It can be completely self-serving and self-protective. You're not doing it because you love Jesus most. You're ultimately doing it because you love yourself most. And this is something we have to wrestle with all the time as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And one of the evidences, by the way, that morality is an idol to you, your standard is an idol to you, is, is seen in how you treat people who live different than you. Your attitude towards people, the way you view and treat people who live different. Listen very carefully to this line. Morality, it may be a line between how we live, but it must never be a line between who we will love. Can I say it again? Morality may be a line between how we will live, but it must never be a line between who we will love. We have to be willing as the people of God to love people who do not share our morals and our views, who do not share our, our theology, who do not respect what we respect, who do not stand for what we stand. But as soon as you are unwilling to love people who have a different standard than you, your standard has become your God to you. And that is what you live for, and that is what you worship, and that is what you turn your attention to, and that is what you adore most. And so we really have to guard our hearts in this and be a people who not, don't just live right, but live right from a place of love for Jesus. All right, so let me wrap up. Everyone has morals. No one is moral. And then let's get to some good news. <laughs> Last point, Jesus is greater than morals. He's greater. You know, there's limitations to what morality can do. You've probably heard it said you can't legislate morality. We've seen that. You can't force morality. You can't make someone live more moral. There's a, there's, a, there's a root of the issue that we've talked about that's in the heart. And I think I skipped the verse earlier, but in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. All that wickedness, all, the, all, all that sin, the immorality, that comes out of our hearts. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And so when we look at morality and we look at Jesus, we have to be convinced in our hearts that Jesus is greater than morality and morals. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae because they think by keeping all the rules and avoiding certain things, they're going to be more righteous than others. And look at what Paul says. If, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's saying you've died to all that. Why are you living under that? And here's some of the regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They thought they were more spiritual than other people because they observed certain holidays and they didn't do certain activities. Referencing those things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now here's the important verse, the most important verse, 23. These have indeed, these being morality, morals, keeping the rule, avoiding things. And there is wisdom in that, by the way, at times. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Asceticism is denying yourself certain pleasures and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And here's what Paul's saying. Following the rules and, and trying to be a very moral person, it actually has no power to change you from the inside out. We all need our hearts changed more than we need our habits changed. And Jesus is better and greater than morals. Now listen, morality, I'm going to ask the band to join. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Morality, when you make morality your God, it will enslave you. When you make morality your goal, it will exhaust you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You don't know if you've ever been good enough, done, done enough. Have you read enough Bible today? Have you prayed long enough today? So if morality is your God, it will enslave you. If morality is your goal, it will exhaust you. But if you, by God's grace, will begin to see morality 
as a gift, it will empower you. Now, how is morality a gift? Morality is a gift because it's a loving, caring God who has given us in his word a picture of what it looks like to bear his image well, to live like his son, but also to be the absolute best, freest version of ourselves. When God warns us about certain sinful behavior, he's not just trying to ruin our lives. He's actually trying to save our lives. He's trying to show us, I know I made you, and I made you in my image. And then I bought you back out of your rebellion. And I know the best way for you to live free. And I know the best way for society to flourish. And so when he gives us the moral law, he's not giving it to us as a God or even a goal. He's giving it to us as a gift. And he's saying, receive what I have for you. Jesus is so much better. Now, in closing, what does Jesus offer us that morality never can? And we saw it earlier when we read it. Verse 25, uh, it said, hold fast to what you have until I come. What did they have? The gospel. What Jesus offers us is something to hold fast to. When the world around us is shaking, when the moral fabric of our society is falling apart, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold fast to. But also, he promised us of a better day. Do you remember? I know it was 30 minutes ago, but do you remember when we read that, about the, that, that God's people would rule with an iron rod and they would smash and break earthen vessels? What Jesus was talking about is a future day when we will reign and rule with Christ. And instead of us being reign and ruled over by our desires and our sinful passions, we will rule over not just our own desires and passions, we will rule over the nations with Jesus. It's a better day. But the last thing that Jesus offers us that morals never could is he, he said to him or her, I will give the morning star. What does that mean? The morning star is the most beautiful star. It's the most glorious star. It's the star that eclipses all other stars. And what Jesus is saying to the one who endures, I will give him myself. I'll give him myself. And that's what we most need is Jesus who he is and what he's done for us. Many years ago now, there was a, a war movie that came out called Saving Private Ryan. And in that film, it tells a story. It's actually based on a true story. It tells the story of a, a captain in the Rangers Battalion. His name is John Miller. And he's given a very special assignment. And his assignment is to find, this is the middle of World War II, is to travel across the countryside, I think they might have been in France, and to find one private. His name was Private Ryan find this guy. And the reason why they had to find him is because Ryan was one of four brothers and his other three brothers had already lost their lives in the war. At that time, our government had some sort of a policy that if three of the four died, they needed to get the fourth brother out so that the family would not lose all of their children. And so Captain John Miller and this small group of soldiers, they go on this dangerous journey across the countryside and they finally find this guy, Private Ryan, and what happens next is this battle. And in this battle, the captain suffers a fatal wound. And he's lying on the ground, or he's seated on the ground, and he's dying. And in one of the most powerful scenes of the movie, uh, Private Ryan comes to him, and the captain extends his hand. And as he shakes his hand, he looks at Ryan in the eyes, and he says, earn this. Earn this. And then it changes to current times, modern day, and you see Private Ryan, who's now grown up, and he's a senior citizen. He's an older gentleman, and he's at the grave of Captain John Miller, and he's weeping. It's power. If you've seen it, you can't forget it. It's a powerful scene. And then he stands up, and he looks at his wife, and he asks her this haunting question, have I been a good man? Tell me I've been a good man. It's powerful, and it's moving. 
But it's also sad because it's a glimpse of what morals offer us. Because if we put our hope in our behavior and our morality, here's what we hear from morals. Earn this. And for the rest of your life, in every circle you run in, you'll turn to people and you say, am I good? (laughs) Have I been good enough? But Jesus Christ, when he died, when he gave his last breath, he didn't shake our hand and say, earn this. He extended his arms and he says, it is finished. Everything you've thought you have to earn, I just did it for you. I completed it for you. So the the offer is not earn this. The offer is come if you're weary and you're burdened and you're exhausted from trying so hard and trying to be a moral person. Lay it all down. Come and enter into the rest for your soul that's only found in me and walk in the rhythms of my grace. And that's why Jesus is greater than morals. He did for us what we can never do for ourselves. It is finished. It's not ours to achieve. It's ours to receive by his grace. And as we see him dying for us and giving his life for us, you know what happens? Our hearts begin to be melted and moved in such a way that we do begin to live lives according to God's law that honor God. But not because we're trying to get something, but because we've received so much. Let's pray together this morning.